Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be here with each one of you, and thank you to Benji for leading us in worship thus far. Uh, it's always, it is, give, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, isn't it? It is a good thing, because He is a good God, and He deserves all the praise and thanks that we can give Him. As some of you may know, most of you may know, we, uh, I'm looking at a study called uh, What Christians Pursue, and it is a study in the habits and characteristics of genuine believers. And we want to do this because we want to know what genuine believers are so that we can put those things, those characteristics and attitude into practice. And the pursuit that I would like to, uh, for us to study today, and perhaps for the next few times that I'm up here, is the pursuit of prayer. And specifically, uh, I mean, there's lots of prayer is a big topic. You can talk about the power of prayer and the, the workings of prayer and, and many things. But specifically, I would like to, us to consider Christ's model for prayer. Uh, we know Jesus often prayed and he, uh, he went away often to, uh, to be separate from his disciples and he prayed and the night before he died, he prayed. And so if Christ invested so much of his life and time in prayer, then perhaps that is a pursuit that we need to be following, which is Christ's model for prayer. And so looking, and, and we want to look at this from Matthew 6, which is the Lord's Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer. Some of you may know it. Uh, perhaps you don't even need to turn to your Bibles. You can rattle it off by heart. I'm sure each one of us can do that. But as you're turning there, it might, help, it might be helpful to get some context about what's happening here and the background to this prayer and why Jesus prays the way that he does and why he asks us to pray the way that he asks us to pray. And so if, if, if you know anything about the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's focusing on Jesus as king. And chapter 5 through chapter 7 is Jesus' first sermon where he lays down the standards of the kingdom. He's talking about how the kingdom is and how the citizens of the kingdom behave. He's laying down the standards, the qualities, um, just the characteristics of kingdom living. And he says, if you basically want to be a part of the kingdom, then this is how you ought to live, this is how you ought to think, this is how you ought to be conducting yourselves. Uh, chapter 5 begins this way, he says, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. So this tells us that the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is for the disciples primarily. Yes, there were other people, there were multitudes around them, but the purpose of this sermon is for the disciples of Jesus. And he is telling them, this is the kingdom, I am the king, this is how my citizens behave. If you are my people, if you are my subjects, then this is how you ought to live. He goes on to keep saying, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Your rabbis told you this, but I tell you. And so he's attacking the theology of the day, talking about to the extreme low standards of so-called kingdom living. And he says, look, uh, your, um, your, your rabbis tell you that you know, um, adultery is, is a sin, but I tell you that even if someone looks at a woman with lust, he has committed a sin. And so Jesus is raising the bar, he is lifting the standard of what the common perception of kingdom living is. And so he's, he's encouraging them, he says, look, you, I know you've, you've studied a certain way, but I tell you, this is what it really is. So he exposes the inadequacy of their theology, 
He exposes their really materialistic view in chapter 6. And here, as we come to this passage, he's talking about their religious practices, specifically of prayer, of giving, and of fasting. And so he's, he's talking about, he's advising and teaching against practicing the religion for other people's sake. For example, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Why? To be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Chapter 6, verse 1. So he's saying, just because you give a religious offering does not make you automatically right with God. Then he comes to the subject of prayer in verse 5, and he says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? So that they may be seen by men. And then in verse 7 And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. In other words, just because you give money and just because you pray does not automatically imply that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You may think that your religiosity that you're giving and you're praying and you're going to the temple and you're giving the alms and standing in the street corners and praying, you may think that you are praying to God. You may think that you are communicating with God and that may lead you to believe that you actually have an audience with God, but your thinking is flawed. The kingdom isn't merely about outward, external action. The kingdom is about inward internal motivation. Why are you doing what you are doing? Are you doing it just so that people can see you, so that you can be a people pleaser, or are you doing it so that you can please God? Very key point. This point was brought home to me recently by a blog post, which was written by John Piper, and the title of it was, Do You Pray Like an Unbeliever? It was interesting, I said, okay, that that sounds interesting. And that's the reason why I wanted to speak on prayer. Because in in the post, John Piper refers to this passage. And he's basically saying, he made me think deeply about something that I hadn't thought about before. And he says, Jesus is saying that people pray. Religious Jews pray. Religious Gentiles pray. Which means, there's the two kinds of people there in the world, the Jews and the Gentiles. Everyone who is religiously minded prays. So their prayer is not simply exclusively a Christian activity. We may, we may think that just because we come to church and we are the people of God that we pray, that act of praying, merely that act of praying doesn't make us Christian. People go to mosques and pray. People go to temples and pray. People go to monasteries and pray. People whip out their rosaries and their beads and start counting and praying. Prayer is not exclusively a Christian activity. I was was thinking, yeah, that's true, actually. Prayer alone does not make me a believer. It does not make me a kingdom citizen. So that, that, that mere act is not a, 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 an indicator that I'm a, a citizen of the kingdom. And that, that was shocking. It's still shocking today. You say, oh, look at that guy. He's gone and cut himself with knives and chains and he's bleeding. I mean, he's, he's praying, right? Or oh, look, look at that person over there. He's on his knees and he's climbing up the mountain. 
Or look at that lady over there, she's shaved the head and she's praying. Or look at that person over there and give her so much money and they're praying. Are you saying that none of this is, is acceptable? I'm not saying that. Jesus is. And he's saying, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like these religious minded people. Don't pray like these people who just want to talk and talk and talk, giving the example or the idea that they actually are communicating with God. Don't do that. So what are we supposed to do? And so we come to our text today. If you want to read off the screen, you can. Pray then in this way. So he's laid out the standards of the kingdom. He said how you are not supposed to pray. And now he says, pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Depending on the version you may have, you may or may not have that last portion, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. And I'll deal with that when we come to that verse. But for now, we just want to focus on verse 9. And there's much, there's much that has been already preached and taught and written about this prayer, so that I do not profess to uh, you know, try and give you a comprehensive sort of picture. But like we said, we want to just focus on the attitude of prayer as Christ gives us in this model. And that's something to remember. This is a model. Jesus doesn't say, pray this prayer. And you go, Rrr. He's giving us a model. He's giving us a structure. It's not, it's not wrong to pray this prayer. It's not wrong to memorize scripture. But very often when we memorize scripture, we can become so familiar with it that we lose its meaning. And so Jesus here is giving us a model, uh, an outline, a framework, pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc., etc. So, so he's, not, he's, not, he's not saying learn this by rote, use this formula if you want to communicate with your Father, bang, 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 I'm done. He wants us to understand what this really means because when we understand what it means, we will understand that this is not just a prayer, it is a model for living. We will see that this is not just something we pray, we will see that this is something we live before we can even think of praying it. Because if our lives are not aligned to our prayers, then we are no better than the hypocrites than Jesus was condemning. If there's anything that you take out from this message today, let it be this, that this is not a model for prayer only. This is a model for a lifestyle. You can't be praying for something that isn't true in your own life. If our prayers are out of alignment with our lives, we are hypocrites. John Bunyan said, prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Prayer will make a man cease from sin. Or, the other way around, sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Prayer and lifestyle feed off each other. And so, 
Let's look at the attitude and the content of prayer that's contained within this text. And I want to do it by following uh, an outline that I hope will be helpful for our study today. What's the outline? We are to pray with reverence. Our Father, hallowed be your name. We are to pray to relinquish. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We are to pray with reliance. Give us this day our daily bread. We are to pray with repentance. Forgive us our trespasses. We are to pray for refuge. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And lastly, we are to pray for God's reputation. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Now, I don't want to get your hopes up or to make you nervous because we're not going to go through all of that this morning. There's a lot in there. We're just going to go through the first part. We had to pray with reverence. But as we go through each one of these, these attitudes, I want us to examine three particular questions just so that we can make our study more practical and our understanding of the theology better. So number one, what does this mean? What does praying with reverence mean? What does it mean to pray for refuge? What do those things mean? Number two, what does that look like in my life? How can I translate this prayer into action that is meaningful in my life? And number three, how should this attitude inform the content of my prayer? What should I be praying for? What should my words be? What, should this, what is the subject that I should be talking about? What are the themes that I should be talking about? Just not so that we can pray uh, great prayers, but that we can pray humbly, truly, and following the model that Christ has led for us. So, with that as an introduction, let's examine the first attitude to pray, excuse me, with reverence. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. In a world where identity politics is gaining the upper hand, asking and referring to God as a Father, gender-specific, can be a problem, can be, seem politically incorrect. But is God a father? No, he is not. God is a spirit. He has no gender. But scripture, in scripture, he refers to himself often as a father. Sometimes he often refers to himself as a mother, as a mother hen trying to gather all her chicks under her wing. But for the most part, God refers to himself as a father. Jesus refers to him as father. So if we need to follow Jesus, we should be following Christ's example of how he referred to the Father. And it's good because, because by following Christ, we can have the relationship that he has with God. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Whose name? Jesus' name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, John 1, 12-13. So the Father and the Son are in an eternal relationship, and the closer we are to the Son, the closer we can be to the Father, because we tap into the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. So we can know God as our Father. Our Father who is in heaven. Now, it's important to state here that Jesus is not simply giving us a model of prayer. It's not a model for Christians to pray to the Christian God. No, he is giving us a model of prayer to the one true God. It's, uh, and, hard, and he's saying our father. So is he the father of the Jews only? Is he the father of the Christians only? No, he's the father of everyone because he is in heaven. 
There is no separate Catholic heaven, or a Muslim heaven, or a Buddhist heaven, or a Hindu heaven. There is only one heaven. And there is only one father. And therefore we can, Jesus is saying, if you want to have a relationship with that father, you must know him as father. Do you? Is the question. If you and I are to pray this prayer meaningfully, genuinely, authentically, we need to know God as our Father. How do we do that? Do we know God as our Father? Is He a distant bully of a God? Or is He someone with whom we have an intimate, personal, man-to-man, person-to-person relationship? It's a massively important question because unless we know him as our father, unless he adopts us into his family, we cannot pray to him as a father. If you don't know God as your father and you're praying away, your prayers are fake. Jesus is saying that. Don't pray like the hypocrites. That's fake prayer. That's a fake worshipper. Don't be like that. Pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven. So it's not simply a model for prayer. It's actually a model for evaluating the relationship that you have with God. It's a yardstick. When we come and just rattle it off, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, we don't think about that. Do we have a relationship with God as our Father? Hallowed be your name. Before we understand the meaning of hallow, I think it's important for us to unpack the meaning of the term your name. And I referred to this uh, a couple of sermons ago when we were looking at Psalm 23 on the pursuit of contentment. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What does it mean? What, what, are we, what is in view when we discuss the name of God? I want to illustrate this with with an example. According to a report of the most valuable global brands in 2016, Google is at the top spot with a brand value of $229 billion. That is the value of the name Google. Coming second, close second is Apple, tech giant, with a brand value of $228 billion. And after that are companies like Microsoft and Facebook and um, Yahoo and and McDonald's. And and together the top 100 brands account for $3.4 trillion in value. So when I say the brand value of Google is something, am I just referring to the words G-O-O-G-L-E? No, I'm talking about the reputation of that brand in the eyes of the people in the global marketplace. When people think and their their idea of Google as a company or Facebook as a company, all of that together gives Google its value. So we're talking about the reputation of a company that translates into a dollar value. So when we refer to the name of the Lord, we are not referring specifically to the letters L-O-R and D. We are referring to the reputation, the perception that God has 
We are referring to his honor. We are referring to his character, his identity, his personality, all his characteristics and attributes. All that put together, is that measurable? No, it is inestimable. It is priceless. It is beyond estimation. The name of God tells us who he is. Moses in the wilderness says, God, you want, me, you want to send me to Israel. Who shall I say is sending me? Send them, I am. What sort of a name is that? The most profound name. I am. I do not become. We become. We change. Our state of being is up and down. Is always in a state of flux. We are not tomorrow what we are today, what we were yesterday. But God is the same yesterday, today and forever. I am. I do not become things. I am. I am outside of time. I am not limited by time. I am who I am. We are who we become, what we become. We become old. We become sick. We become despondent. We become weary. We become tired. Everything in us, our health, our mental state, our attitudes, everything is subject to the vagaries of time. God is not. Our Father is not. So when Jesus is teaching us to pray, He's saying, recognize who God is. He is not like you. It's so important to understand this because when you are calling on the most worthy name in the universe... It's not like Joe blogs down the street. This is not a one in a million, one in a million genius. This is not a whiz kid. This is not a prodigy. This is not a human prince. This is not someone who is the people's favorite. This is someone who is utterly and wholly different. He is other. He is not like you and me. He is not simply a better version of you and me. That would be someone like Usain Bolt. Someone like me, but miles better. I can't run 100 meters in 20 seconds. I don't know if, if that. He can do it under 10. Someone like me, but better, is like Einstein, or Da Vinci, or Charlie Chaplin, Alfred Hitchcock. Genius, visionary, brilliant. But that is not God. God is not a better version or the best version of ourselves. He is utterly different to ourselves. And therefore when we approach Him, we cannot come with a sense of casual familiarity because we are approaching a being who we don't really comprehend. He is a person, yes. He, he is in a league of his own, but he's a person unlike the way we are persons. We are a reflection of him, an image of him, but we are not him. When you stand in front of the mirror, right? When you stood in front of the mirror today, you saw yourself in a reflection. But that reflection is not you. If that reflection wanted, it couldn't go out and get a job. That reflection doesn't have a passport. That reflection is not you. 
It represents you, but it is not you. And I'm not trying to get into some philosophical idea, but we need to understand that we are just a reflection and a distorted one of that, of God. This is the holiness. This is what we mean by the holiness of God, the otherness. He is totally different. And that is a fearful thing. Isaiah stands before God and he's, what's his reaction? Woe is me! Woe is me, why? For I am ruined because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, I'm coming undone. It's like my clothes are coming apart at the seams. I'm torn. I'm destroyed. Ezekiel is no better. He sees the vision of God and what's his reaction? In 128, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord and when I saw it, I fell on my face. And then God, the Spirit of God tells him to get up. And then again, chapter 3, verse 23, So I got up and went out of the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there, like the glory which I saw by the river Chiba, and I fell on my face. Scripture tells us that, that something happens to people when they are in the presence of God. Now, some people might say, that's worm theology. That's dwelling too much on your unworthiness. That's dwelling too much on your, self, on your sinfulness. That's, that's, that's not good because it's taking away from the new identity that God has given you. You're a new creature. He has, he, you are born again. And so when you come, He has told you that he, you can go into His presence with confidence and boldness. So don't, don't wallow in your sinful identity. Approach His presence with boldness. Praise God that is true. We do have a new identity. We can approach Him with boldness. But His grace does not change who He is. Just because He allows us to enter into His presence doesn't make Him any less glorious, any less magnificent, any less terrifying. Listen to what John has to say. In Revelation 1, 12 and 17. Just listen to this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So what happened, John? Did you give him a high five? Did you just hang out with him? Did you cruise around heaven? No. I didn't do anything of the sort. What did you do then, John? When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. When I saw him, I became like a corpse. The presence of Jesus made me drop dead. But John, this is the New Testament. 
This is gentle Jesus, meek and mild. John, what's wrong with you? You spent three years with Jesus. What's to be afraid of? No. This is the risen Lord. This is the creator of the universe. This is the most awesome and majestic being ever. This is the one of whom it is written in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God made visible. And what is true of the Son is true of the Father. If you stand in the presence of the Son and can be terrified, you will be terrified when you stand and approach the Father. The mercy of God does not diminish His magnificence. His grace does not diminish His glory. His compassion does not make Him any less formidable. We need to understand this. Because we've got movements around us that say, yes, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah, we're going to heaven and we're going to see God and we're going to have a great time. Hang on. Whose presence are you entering here? Think about this. Who is God? He's not like anything you have seen. He's the one who created you. He's the one who spoke the word and billions of galaxies came into being. This is not worm theology. This is biblical theology. What does is, what is Proverbs 9.10 say? The friendship of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? The familiarity of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? No. It's the fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When the Jews were talking about wisdom, they weren't just saying if you fear God, you become brilliant in chemistry. No. It's not that. Wisdom in Jewish understanding is how to live. When you fear God, you know how to live. If you do not fear God, you are a fool. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Proverbs 6, 16, 6. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 16. This is your heavenly Father. This is your heavenly father. So when you approach him, think about that. How do you approach your heavenly father? Just because he is your father doesn't turn him into a teddy bear. What am I saying when I say, hallowed be your name? What do I truly mean? I mean, let your name be respected. Let people see you for who you really are. When, when the world wants to scorn and laugh at you, show them the gravity of your identity. Show them how marvelous you are. Show them how worthy of praise you are. Show them why we come to Sunday and sing His praises. Show them why we choose to live a different life. 
Let your glory be on display so that people are driven to their knees by your awesomeness. That is what we mean when we say, Hallowed be your name. Is this your attitude when you come to the Lord in prayer? Is this the content of your prayer? Is this your heart's desire? It's a very uncomfortable question because what I'm really asking when I say, is this the, des- is this the desire of your, of your heart? What I'm really getting at is, is this the direction of your life? And when I say that, it makes it even more com- uncomfortable for me because, is this the direction of my life? Is my life and your life consistent with the desire to see God glorified? Does the pattern of our life reflect the desires of our prayer? Does the desire of our prayer reflect the pattern of our life? If I'm praying for God's name to be hallowed, but I'm living, I'm not living according to this prayer, then my prayer rings hollow. God sees me. I'm standing before him, trying to say, hallowed be your name, and he sees my heart, that there is no hallowing of his name. What am I trying to do? I would be a fool to do that. To treat God with contempt and scorn by thinking that he doesn't know what's really going on. Do I really have the audacity to come before God and sing His songs and pray His prayers and to really think He doesn't know what's going on in my heart? Jesus is teaching us to pray with reverence and by teaching us to pray with reverence, He's teaching us to live with reverence. We must live out before others what we pray before God. Why? What does the psalmist say? Let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart. Not just the words of my mouth be acceptable to you. Let the meditation, let my thoughts, let my motivations, let my attitudes be acceptable in your sight. Let my speech be in sync with my heart. Let the words that other people hear align with the things that only you can see, Lord. Let my public life be in harmony with my private life. What I'm really asking for when I pray for God's name to be hallowed, I'm asking for Him to be first glorified in my life. How can I pray for God's name to be hallowed in the world if He's not hallowed in my life? What do, what do what do I mean? Your name be hallowed everywhere, but yeah, I'm 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 fine, thanks. I'm asking that my lifestyle would bring him honor. I'm praying that I would live a life of integrity instead of living a life of compromise. I'm not talking that we have to be perfect. We can't be perfect. We will fall. But is our motivation, Lord, forgive me? And we will come to that. But for now, is he hallowed in my life? So to summarize, what does it mean to pray with reverence? 
Let's ask our three questions. What does it mean to pray with reverence? Number one, it means to give God the glory. It means to be concerned about His glory. Do you worry that God is not being glorified? Does it keep you up at night? What keeps you up at night? Is, is the glory and the reputation and the worth of God your concern? That's what, we, that's what it means to pray with reverence. That I am concerned that God is not glorified in everyone's life. I am concerned that there are areas in my own life where He is not glorified. And I want to change that. And I am asking Him to change that. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Be glorified. Be lifted up. Let the world see. And if I'm saying let the world see, then I need to be that trophy of grace for the world to see. This is what it looks like. A hallowed life. Separate. Holy. It looks like holy living. It looks like a concern for his honor and reputation. It looks like being a faithful steward of your mind. Taking every thought captive to Christ. You don't let just wayward thoughts run through your mind. My mom told me when I was little, it's always stayed with me. You can't prevent the birds from flying over your head. But you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. Sounds silly. But it's true. You can't stop these sinful thoughts from running around in your mind, but you can stop them from building and building and building till they run out of control. That's what that looks like. Where it's not just the outward things which people can see that you want to be holy and reverent. You want to take it into your innermost being. Are there areas in your life that are not submitted to the Lord? I'm sure they are. I'm positive they are. Is he making you aware of these areas? What are you doing about that? Are you submitting to his lordship? We're going to study, Lord, thy will be done. We're going to do that in, in the future. But you can't say, Lord, your will be done, if he were not hallowing his name. How can you do that? The first step in God's will being done is God's will being done in your heart. And that begins when you hallow his name. How, what else does that look like? Love his word. Love his people. Love the gathering of the saints. Praise him. Sing. Worship him. Make much of him. Exalt him. Let others hear you praise him. Not just in church. Let others hear you praise Him in your family. 
other friends barbecue at work others then will see wow okay I can't see I mean uh, I don't believe that stuff but hey seems to be working for this guy the thing is when you start doing that in public you have to live up to it don't you you can't speak out of one side of your mouth and then act differently and that's the problem with Christianity today, isn't it? I'm a Christian. I wear a, neck, a cross around my neck. I go to church on Sunday. I do my thing, blah, blah, blah. I know all the prayers. But my life is totally out of sync with my speech. How should this attitude inform the content of my prayer? Acknowledge that He is awesome. Understand what awesome really means. I saw a movie yesterday. Awesome, man. No, that's not awesome. God is. Bless Him. What words are you using to bless Him? I'm not, I'm not saying that you've got to write out your prayer and just be articulate. But I am saying that our whole lives should be tuned really to Him. So clearly this first aspect of prayer is not about us. Prayer is not about us. It's about Him. It's about His glory. It's about His plan and we'll see it in, 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 in the coming weeks. But first of all, it is asking God to be God. It's asking for His Lordship, His ownership, His sovereignty, His supremacy to be made manifest. Let us pray with a deep sense of reverence. Profound. Not because we are great philosophers or thinkers, but because we have seen the Lord. Let me close with two passages of scripture that echo this sentiment. First one is in Hebrews 5.7. And it's speaking of Jesus. And it says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Some versions that have, And he was heard because of his fear. He was heard because of his reverence. That word piety, is, it's really interesting, and I want you to get this. It can be translated as fear or reverence, but the picture, the picture that the word has is a cautious taking hold of. If someone gave you the crown jewels in your hands, you would be really, really cautious. I remember when Benji wanted us to drop, us, drop them to the airport and he says, here's the Merc, take it. Oh, I'm like, oh, really? I mean, what if I do something to this? I understand the worth of what is being put in my hand. So I treat it with caution. 
I don't trample upon it. I don't treat it lightly. I'm not casual. There's a careful and respectful handling. That's what that word means. Piety, reverence. It could be defined as a careful as to the realization of the presence and claims of God. Imagine that Jesus is careful as to the presence and the claims of God. He's careful. Jesus prays with reverence. The Son of God prays with reverence. The one through whom and for whom everything is created, He prays with reverence. The Lamb of God, who is crucified for the sins of the world, who is going to be glorified, who is going to be sitting at the right hand of the Father, who is victorious, who is the one before all things, He prays with reverence. How much more should we and for our last passage, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to end with this. Just been through this passage already and I want to go over it just to see how it links back to how Paul wants us to follow the example of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and we'll read from verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Why? For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has the believer in common with an unbeliever? Do not join yourself together spiritually. Verse 16, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Verse 18, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, Chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, as a result of God being your father, as a result of you being his sons and daughters, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness. How? In the fear of the Lord. And I will be a father to you, God is saying. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, that you are divine children, that you are citizens of the kingdom, that God is your father, therefore, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What is Paul telling us? Paul is saying, the fatherhood of God ought to create in us the fear of God. We don't usually think of that in, in human terms. Fathers are cool and hip and fun in an earthly sense. But God our Father 
expects us to approach him in fear. This is not the fear of a tyrant. This is not the fear of someone who is cracking the whip at us. This is caution, respect, devout submission, earnest worship. And we're back right where we started. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because because God is our Father, because we are His children, because of this wonderful reality, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, and let us perfect holiness in the fear of God. Let us hallow His name with our lives. Shall we pray? Father God, when we come to an understanding of who you are, we really have no option but to tread carefully. Your holiness demands our caution. Teach us, Lord, to revere your name, not just in words, but in deed. Open our eyes to your majesty and give us a deeper, more profound appreciation, Lord, of your holiness. Transport us daily to the throne of your grace where we can see you high and lifted up. Lord, so that every moment of our lives would be lived in awe of you to the praise of your glory. And we ask this, Lord, so that the name and the reputation of your Son would be magnified in us and through us. Amen.